Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today with my friend Mariana Mazzucato. She is the co-founder and director of an institute at the University College London on the questions of innovation and public purpose. She's a frequent author. Her books include The Entrepreneurial State, The Value of Everything, and her newest book that we'll talk about in some detail today, The Mission Economy. Mariana, thanks for joining me. Hi, Rob. Thanks so much. It's wonderful to see you. You too. So here we are in this turbulent, prolonged time of pandemic, climate change on the horizon, social sustainability, just whether it's in north-south or what I call the first and third worlds inside of each advanced country, there are a whole lot of things that need to be addressed. And I believe, which you might say, the, the pandemic is awful, but there might be a silver lining in that it was the catalyst. It was an awakening. It was an unmasking. What are you seeing that you like? What are you seeing as opportunity? What are you seeing you don't like? And what do you wish you were seeing so you could like it more? Wow, great set of questions. <laughs> I wish every conversation would begin like this. So, I mean, I guess what I like is that there is a real realization that this time it's different. You know, if you think back to what happened with the financial crisis, we just flooded the system with liquidity and, you know, hoped for the best. This time, what's really interesting globally is we have recovery packages that are not only very large, but they are increasingly structured. So in Europe, where I'm sitting, I'm sitting, well, I'm in the UK, Brexit, but yes, we're still in Europe. The EU recovery fund is actually conditional on governments that receive the funding to invest and to innovate around two big challenges that we have globally, which is climate change and digitalization. We didn't have that before, that's new. That's like a directed Marshall Plan. Now, whether it actually leads to what we hope it leads to, we can talk about later, but at least, you know, it's there. And we didn't have that, you know, with the financial crisis, most of the money that inundated the system actually ended up back in the financial sector. I think another thing that I find inspiring is that there is a realization that we're all only as um, healthy as our neighbor is on our street, in our city, in our nation and globally. Had this crisis begun, for example, in an African country with a much weaker health system, than the Chinese health system, we would all globally be worse off. So, you know, this, this um, realization that actually what we really need are stronger global health systems could potentially, this is the opportunity, I'm not saying it's a reality, wake us up to the fact that we need to revitalize and reimagine really a global welfare state. Um, and I guess what I'm not seeing <laughs> is both of those things necessarily leading to the kind of actions and the speed that we really require them to in order to make those a reality. You know, we already see now with the vaccine, for example, what Dr. Tedros, the head of the World Health Organization, calls uh, a vaccine apartheid. So, you know, hoarding of vaccine dosages in rich countries. 
Um, we also don't necessarily have solidarity in terms of how we govern vaccine production in terms of really fostering, again, what uh, the WHO calls collective intelligence, you know, through a patent pool to make sure that all the knowledge really is shared globally. So, you know, the same things that are an amazing opportunity and that we have the seed for uh, are also the challenge. If we don't get the concrete action, then actually, you know, the fact that we're talking about solidarity and then don't govern it in a concrete way becomes actually part of the problem. When you talk about the WHO, I always think of Pete Townsend. And the song for today is We Won't Get Fooled Again. So uh, I think uh, these these questions of, I mean, Mohammed Elarian just wrote a Project Syndicate piece where he said, none of us are safe until everyone's safe. Absolutely. And I, and I just see this rising consciousness of the collective responsibility. I used to worry in the United States, we had this horrible episode of a shooting in Sandy Hook schools. And I always said, freedom isn't the freedom to carry a gun. It's also the freedom from being shot by others. Why aren't yeah. these freedom to and freedom from in balance? And yeah. the health crisis brings that on a much larger yeah. scale and international scale back into focus. By the so way, another th sorry, just one other thing that's inspired sure. me, actually, because it's good to, to also say more good things, given that we're living through so many tragedies right now. Something that's inspired me has been seeing how some countries that are still really developing have actually done incredibly well in terms of how they've governed the crisis. And that has been related to investments that they've been making historically within their own public administrations. And I'm thinking of places like Vietnam or the region of Kerala in India. Um, and, you know, have actually done better than the UK in, in many respects, where we actually outsource so much of our public competence to uh, consulting companies, something that a recently a, a Tory lord called Lord Agnew called the infantilization of governments. Quite interesting. But anyway, so, you know, seeing this very different and heterogeneous experience globally, I think always reminds us that decisions matter, strategy matters, policy matters, both in government, but also in the business sector. I've always said this in business, as have many of your grantees, I'm sure. You know, the fact that you have different, um, you know, business practices, but that these also then determine different levels of growth, different types of working conditions, different types of innovative performance in the business literature is about strategy mattering. But we sometimes forget about that also within the policy space. And we end up thinking that, you know, oh, politics or yeah, policies are all sort of top down and we'll see if they work or not. But the fact that really concrete ability to govern such an immense crisis has had differing, uh, you know, performance uh, uh, um, achievements, if you want, depending on what actually happened, how we governed relationships between the state, academia, business, civil society organizations. There's so many lessons there that we can learn from. Yeah, my former uh, partner in the documentary film business, Alex Gibney, has made a film called Totally Under Control, which is a mockery of the relationship between the Trump administration's response and South Korea's response to the COVID crisis. And he released that 10 days before the presidential election to, uh, right. <laughs> I say, try to nudge things along at the time we were all headed to the voting booths. But these, uh, how would I say, these differences in governance, there's a book right now, very controversial in America, called Capitalism on a Ventilator, which is comparing the U.S. and the Asian responses to COVID and saying, what is it? that makes you think the world's going to want to 
emulate the United States of America after our performance since last March. Obviously, we have a new administration in power now, and it's a chance to uh, change our yeah. mode of behavior. But uh, yeah. that, wasn't, that was not a particularly uh, strong demonstration of the greatness of the United States of America. Yeah, and you know, things change over, yeah, I mean, things change, right? So the U.S., if, if you think about how it reacted in terms of transforming and transitioning its productive structure, to produce kind of wartime needs in World War II, you know, the Defense Production Procurement Act, for example, where they were able to do that also required a lot of interaction, for example, with trade unions. Without the trade unions, that quick transformation wouldn't have been possible. And I think looking at the varieties of capitalism, both globally, but also within any one country, how its way of doing capitalism changes over time, is quite, again, interesting in seeing how that then determines the transformative capacity, the structural capacity on the ground to produce things, you know, to produce personal protection equipment, to produce a functioning test and trace system. But again, you know, during World War II, it wouldn't have happened without a very specific form of both, you know, a, a government, but also its interrelationship with civil society organizations like trade unions. Well, I think uh, there's a lot of interest similar to the how do you say, the vision that I've read in your most recent book. Naomi Klein's older brother, Seth Klein, who's worked with INET, has written a book called The Good War. And he's drawing the analogy. Obviously, Canada is a big fossil fuel producer. I think it's one of the six largest. And so both supply and demand side of the economy need to be transformed markedly. So he looked at Canadian war preparation. They joined World War II, the Allied forces, three years before the United States did. And he talks about that process as a, perhaps a precedent. I know Bill Janeway has just made a course with us at INET on venture capital and the economics of innovation, which is basically about eight parts. But it's always about the relationship to the, of the state to the transformation of society. Felix Rowett wrote a book called Bold Endeavors, which I believe were either 11 or 13 cases of the transformation that was facilitated by government leadership, like the Erie Canal or the highway systems. So I, I see this, uh, what you might call beckoning, particularly related to climate, and the role of the state, which you might call demonized slightly by the libertarians. By the way, I find the most contradictory place, and I love your BBC uh, article, and I love your BBC uh, just for creating a man called Adam Curtis, whose documentaries are amazing. But he had one, I think it was called All Wrapped Up in Machines of Loving Grace, about Silicon Valley's being spawned by the state and then becoming libertarians once they were making money and didn't want to pay taxes. And, it, it, and, and Janeway kind of goes to the same place. The state may not be there as the partner always, but there are phases, particularly at the onset of a challenge, where their leadership may be a necessary condition. And Bill talks about software development, DARPA, the development of the internet, before that World War II war preparation, but then he foreshadows about the role in the last lecture, what might happen in climate where the government could play that catalytic necessary leadership role. And that brings us, I guess, to your book, Mission Economy, which I've had the 
good fortune to look in an advanced copy, in a, at least vis-a-vis -vis the United States, it's an advanced copy. And, uh, and I look forward to everybody being able to uh, find it, read it, and so forth. But let's talk about first, what inspired you to write that book now? You've written The Value of Everything, The Entrepreneurial State. You're very involved at high levels of policy all over the world. What did you want to say in this particular book? I think, um, I mean, the reason I wrote it is on the back of The Entrepreneurial State, which I wrote um, back actually in 2011 as a pamphlet, which then got circulated to policymakers worldwide. It then became a full-fledged book with extra chapters in 2000. 13, that really appealed to a lot of policymakers. You know, it, it really was about um, similarly, actually before Bill Janeway's book, <laughs> about very much those issues about, you know, that innovation-led growth in places like Silicon Valley. But also if you look at what's happening in China today, if you look at what's happening in Denmark today, which, by the way, is the number one provider of high-tech uh, green digital services to China's green economy and China's spending $1.7 on greening its economy. You couldn't explain that success without looking not only at the role of the state on kind of that early stage that you were talking about, but also on the demand side, also really helping those you know, companies that want to innovate to actually scale up, so not just startups, but scaling up. And that kind of thirst to know more about that story, changing the narrative of the state, going beyond just market fixing to what I call co-creating and co-shaping markets, led me actually to work with many different policymakers globally. And more recently, the way I was working, especially in the European Commission and with different countries' industrial strategies, was this idea that we could do better than just make a list of kind of great sectors to to finance, it really needed to learn the lessons from the internet, where the internet was a solution to a problem, right? So it wasn't just that DARPA financed it. DARPA was trying to solve a problem, which was getting the satellites to communicate. So this idea of putting, you know, on the front end of policymakers' minds, what are the problems <laughs> you're trying to solve? And how can you then use a problem-based, a purpose-driven, what I call a mission-driven approach to get as many different sectors in your economy to innovate, to collaborate, to invest, and literally put that into the design of procurement, grants, loans, and industrial strategy to crowd in kind of that bottom-up experimentation. So my experience in actually working with the European Commission or with you know, ministers of uh, state like Greg Clark, who is the minister of business here in the UK, but also in the South African government and Brazil and so on, just led me to believe kind of two things. One, this is much harder to do than to just talk about. <laughs> and I wanted to write a book about the nitty gritty that I was learning along the way, but also just what an inspiring kind of, you know, a set of points it is when you change how you think about policy instead of thinking of it as a top-down process, right? You go lecture everyone that they should be, you know, fostering a carbon-neutral city. What does it actually mean to bring different actors to the table to actually in some ways co-design the process? You know, you need that kind of top-down idea of what it is we want to do, but the how to really catalyze as much, you know, innovation, investment, and collaboration, you really need what is often talked about as stakeholder capitalism, but I think it's really just talked about in terms of corporate governance, right? So bringing this notion of stakeholder value to the design process of how business, government, civil society organizations, coming back to our point before, work together at the local level to produce change. That requires rethinking not only the role of the state, but literally what policy is for and how to design it. So I wanted to write a book which kind of gave that sense of hope that we can do so much better um, and also some of the how. And the reason I kind of focused on the moon landing 
was I don't think people realized just how much collaboration, uh, you know, went on. It wasn't just NASA. There was lots of investment from companies like General Motors, Honeywell, Motorola, but also many others. And the collaboration really was purposeful. You know, NASA actually cared about things like how to design the procurement to also get a good deal for NASA. They even had a no excess profits clause, which is quite interesting. Um, and really believed that in order to even know how to write the terms of reference of a partnership with business, they required themselves dynamic capabilities, what through my institute we call the dynamic capabilities of the public sector. And so because there's so much kind of government bashing out there saying, oh, yeah, Mariana, you talk about the entrepreneurial state, but actually look at, you know, what kind of states we have, this, that, the other. That's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You know, the more you think at best the state is there for, at best, to fix market failures, um, you know, the less you actually have an incentive to invest within state institutions and all those things they need to do much more than that. So to be collective kind of value creators coming you know, to the language of my other book on value. Um, any business that wants to create value will think about really intricate questions around you know, organizational behavior, decision sciences, strategic management, all these great things that people study in masters in business administration. And yet public choice theory and new public management, which has really trickled down from Chicago type economics, has basically convinced so many civil servants that not only the best they can do is to fix markets, but even worse, you know, government failure is even worse than market failures. So occupy as little space as possible <laughs> and then get out of the way. Um, and that, that has reduced our, our competence, the capabilities within state institutions. And, and I guess the real reason I wrote the book was to revitalize our belief that you know, if we went to the moon and back 50 years ago, directed by the state and fostering an immense amount of partnership with business, what would it look like? if we did that with the sustainable development goals, these social problems that are much more wicked and difficult in some ways than going to the moon, but that require that equal amount of urgency, of seriousness, of collaboration, of catalyzing you know, bottom-up innovation, but also really getting good deals you know, to make sure we don't get what we ended up with in Silicon Valley, which was a huge amount of state investment, socialization of risk, and then privatization of rewards. You know, and we've seen that a bit in the pharmaceutical world as well, Absolutely. where uh, the taxpayer is putting up a lot of the basic research. Yeah, uh, I have published on research yeah. on that in recent yeah. months, and and yeah. the uh, and then it's how they say the product is privatized, and the and the state doesn't own an equity holding in the successful pharmaceutical yep. products that are created. But also how we govern the patent system, right? I mean, even with the vaccine right now unless we have, you know, the patent pool that, you know, Dr. Tedros has been arguing for, we're going to have, again, a system where you have huge amounts of public and private, but a lot of public money going in, and then the patent system is misgoverned, what William Baumol used to call unproductive entrepreneurship, you know, this kind of exactly. rent-seeking right. through the patents. He was one of my teachers in graduate school. Was he? <laughs> he, he also did a book, just as an aside, on the uh, theater arts and the economics of the theater arts, which is a brilliant, really? brilliant piece of work. Because he, he dealt with public goods externalities as though they were a substantial portion of the environment rather than the exception in the footnote in chapter 37. And uh, that mindset was really quite powerful and, and very inspiring. But I think I, I want to come back. Uh, you'd just written about the value of the BBC. And one of the things that you and I share is a friend named Mark Carney, former governor of the Bank of England and the Bank of Canada. And he's now working with the UN as a climate 
ambassador, I guess, or whatever, a, a special member. And uh, Mark gave the wreath lectures this last, in 2020. And in the beginning, he's talking about the difference between value and values. And he talks about uh, the late Tommaso Padiasquiopa, uh, who was the finance and economy minister in Italy, about sometimes things migrate from being science to being faith and being mythological. I've done a recent podcast with a gentleman named McCarraher, Eugene McCarraher, called The Enchantments of Mammon, where he talked about how after the Protestant Reformation, we went to a secular society, religious institutions in many ways that the late feudalism before the Industrial Revolution were discredited for their corruption, for their collaboration in using moral and ethical dialogue to support the landed aristocracy with the military backing them. Adam Smith entered into this realm between the theory of moral sentiments and the wealth of nations and beyond. So you have all of this kind of uh, what I'll call transfer of faith from religion in God to the market. And then as Mark talks about in his lecture, the confusion between values and value as though the outcome of the market identifies the value that reflects our values there's a lot of slippage in there, and this is the this is the place where you've walked right in, and I wanted I I brought a quote from reading of your work that I wanted to uh, how do I say put on the table. You said these myths have been accepted as truth by so many, but none of them are inevitable. By rejecting these myths, we can rethink what the role of government should be in society. The problem is not big government, small government. The problem is the type of government and what it does and how it should set off a catalytic reaction in society. So you're, you're envisioning, what I guess I'm saying is we got to get over those stale myths and now there's a void and you're trying to fill the void with a constructive vision of what to do. And boy, that's a lot better than despair in my book. So what, what, what kind of myths do you think get in the way of the things that a government in collaboration with people deciding what values are that are worth purpose, what gets in the way? What are the myths that are the resistance that you experience as you're working? So there's a lot of them. I mean, the first, of course, is that as soon as you start talking about the need for smarter government, more capable government, and the investments that are required, you get seen as someone who just thinks the state does everything and you need a bigger state. And, you know, and, and it's, it's amazing how many intelligent people, <laughs> even some of your friends, Rob, uh, will go down that route and don't kind of get the point that actually this is all about partnership. It's all about collaboration. But if you don't have a bold ambitious government that really gets what its role is, then business also loses out, right? So it's not about saying government is more important. It's that it's impossible to also get the kind of public-private partnerships that we need if we've reduced our understanding and our thinking about the state to, again, be at best an enabler of business. Even, you know, people who really believe in stakeholder value. I was on a, on a, on a Davos um, uh, session at the opening of the World Economic Forum a couple of weeks ago. And one of the you know, biggest proponents of stakeholder value actually said, uh, you know, uh, business 
is the prime wealth creator in society. And what we need is to make sure that wealth is you know, shared. And that was the concept of stakeholder value that was being propagated. And I said, no, hold on a second. Stakeholder value must begin with the real conviction, if we believe in stakeholder value, that value is collectively created. It's not just created in business. Of course, business creates value, but so does government. And so do increasingly, by the way, nonprofit organizations in some sectors like in health. Um, and so what do we know about their ability to do so? What are the structures that are required? What's the culture? What's the you know, um, a, a type of um, thinking in terms of kind of portfolio thinking that we were just talking about before in terms of the kind of investments that are required? If, you're, if you don't admit that you're also a value creator, you don't even ask those questions. So I think that's the biggest myth that, you know, uh, well, two, I guess, I just unpacked two myths. One is that as soon as you talk about the need for a smarter strategic, and my words, mission-oriented state, you're all just about the state as opposed to, you know, what is actually at the core of the point, which is that we need that in order actually to work together with other actors better. And two, another big myth is again, that about value, which is, you know, okay, fine, we can have a state, you know, a, a bold state doing innovation, but it's really just enabling, facilitating, de-risking, this word I can't stand, de-risking the risk-taking within business. So this myth about who's actually a risk-taker, uh, is another issue because if you if you admit that you're a risk taker, of course it's also going to be accepted that you'll make mistakes. And so a big problem in bottleneck, a third one here, is that you know as soon as a civil servant or a public servant makes a mistake, they're on the front page of the Daily Mail, right? So there's plenty of people that as soon as you do talk about the state as as being you know possibly much bolder, will start you know listing all sorts of mistakes that states have made, whether it's Concord, you know that isn't flying. Or in the UK, you know, British Leyland that received backing, or Solyndra in the US, and so that's again a myth that comes from another myth, <laughs> which is if you don't admit that you're value creating, and you know you don't actually then think about things like trial and error, right? If you're really there just to enable business, then you shouldn't be making any kind of bold investments, um, and and because actually taking risks, not just de-risking will require making some mistakes if we don't have a framing that understands you know a risk-taking state that is doing so in order to foster for example a green transition then just because it makes a mistake like Solyndra bang front page right and so one of the things but this I already started doing it in you know the entrepreneurial state which is to say hold on what if you actually looked at all the different investments literally through a portfolio approach you'd realize that when Solyndra happened you know, Tesla also happened. The two companies actually received almost the same amount of money during a period where Obama was actually trying to foster a directed recovery after the financial crisis. That then sort of failed in terms of all the political infighting with the Tea Party, but a portfolio approach would allow you to say, yeah, of course we're going to make some mistakes. Just speak to Bill Janeway or any venture capitalist. You know, for every success, you will have many failures, but how do you make sure you're not just bailing out the failures, but also getting some of the upside. And even though I've spoken about that in, you know, in the entrepreneurial state, what I did in, in, in this book, based on the kind of concrete work I've been doing with governments worldwide, is to say, okay, look, it's not enough to say we need more purpose-driven policy. We need to look at the tools, right? You know, what does it actually mean to have a portfolio approach? So you're not picking winners, again, another myth that it's all about picking winners. You're not picking winners, but picking the willing right? That what you're doing is you're fostering a transition, you're making choices, of course, you're picking directions, 
but then you don't just hand out money to you know types of companies like small medium enterprises or types of sectors a, a list of your top sectors or types of technologies like quantum computing but you really focus on problems and make sure that all your different sectors really are collaborating and investing towards that goal and look at the policy redesign that's required to foster that intersectoral and bottom-up experimentation. But also, you know, lastly, I just want to say something about the narrative. You know, given what I just mentioned, that as soon as you make a mistake, you're in the front page of the paper. <laughs> uh, what does it mean to create a different narrative and literally story of, of how wealth is created and the capabilities that are required in all different types of, you know, organizations, but also this idea that you're not really there to level the playing field, you know, a, a mythological <laughs> way to talk about what government's for, but tilting the playing field, uh, you know, again, taking risks and admitting that the economy has not just a rate, but a direction and that we need a lot of debate. And, you know, we need a, a, a national debate about which direction do we actually want to go. Um, and, and talking about directionality of growth, not just the rate of growth, already starts to pose so many different questions for policymakers and, and requires a different language. Again, not leveling, but tilting, you know, uh, not de-risking, but taking risks, not fixing markets, but co-shaping and co-creating markets. And all these different words actually amount to a different story because it is a different story. It's a different feeling of what it is that we're actually talking about in terms of policy and again, collaborations between public and private. Yeah, well, I, you know, when we, when we use that phrase myth, it seems that the myth is that in a, what you might call partnership first, the private sector should be the senior partner and the government, as you said, kind of cleaning up on market imperfections and subsidizing rather than co-visionaries or, uh, and, and secondly, the myth that somehow the market will always get it right has to be challenged. And I, I, I don't quite understand how we got to this place, but it's, it's quite haunting because let's just take a little quick history tour. John Kennedy says, don't think about what your country can do for you. Think about what you can do for your country. Ronald Reagan says, I'm the government. I'm going to help. That's dangerous. The government's the problem, not the solution. We get to 2011, 2010-11. I listened to a podcast about an unnamed Obama official who said we can't be like the New Deal because the public and progressive Democrats don't believe in government like they did in those days. And a man named Stuart Zeckman, who's a, a performing artist at the time, was a guest on this podcast, and he said, well, I went and I looked at the Gallup polls about where this distrust of the government was, and it was that they thought the government had been captured. Even liberal Democrats, the government had been captured. This is in the aftermath of the TARP legislation and the bailout where people like Joe Stiglitz said the polluters got paid and everybody with mortgage overhangs was suffering. So there wasn't anybody prosecuted. There wasn't a distributional consideration. And I, I got to be a little bit careful here. The folks that did the bailout thought we were going over the cliff. And there was an urgency to stabilize things. And the financial sector was a very strong lobby. And so if you didn't stabilize things in a way that they would accept, 
we might have gone over the cliff. And then everybody, then it's a lose-lose game. But we're in a place then, Tea Party, Occupy Wall Street, cynicism about government on both left and right, and now climate and pandemic walk out on center stage. It's, it's in my view, you're what the doctor ordered. Breaking <laughs> down these myths and filling yeah. this void is the essential challenge of our time. And it can't be, it can't be subjected to that, which you might call callousness and cynicism from John, from the disillusion after John Kennedy and the Vietnam War, Richard Nixon's uh, Watergate, losing his job, frustrations with Jimmy Carter, and then the, the problems that have emerged subsequently. And when everybody thinks things are captured, when everybody thinks the legislature is working for fundraising for a very narrow segment of the population, given the concentration of wealth, the phrase I use is that's when the commodification of social design has taken over and everyone's despondent. How do, how do we get out of that? Well, you're boldly painting the vision. You're creating the music we might want to dance to. But, but the question is, it's not simple. And, I, and you acknowledge that very humbly in your book. You acknowledge it over and over and over again. But we can't not pursue this agenda. Yeah. I have a chapter where I just talk about those myths. And I also try to demythologize some of the words that, actually, that, that we use. So the five myths that I talk about are value, markets, efficiency, capabilities, and direction. But just the markets one for a minute. You know, even some heterodox economists sometimes get sloppy, including myself, <laughs> with how we use the word the market. The market is not the same thing as business, right? So when we say, you know, the market versus, say, the state, it's, it's really what we're talking about is business and the state. But markets are the outcomes. Markets are the outcomes of how we govern business, how we govern government. There's different ways to govern. We know this business, stakeholder, shareholder value. There's different ways to govern public organizations, right? Whether they're just market fixing or actually explicitly about co-creating and co-shaping markets. And that's where that BBC example comes in that I just wrote a report on. The BBC as an organization has actually explicitly within tried to achieve public value, this really interesting word that they've used to also monitor their own uh, uh, um, um, remit really and, and what they do and the success of what they do. But markets are an outcome of these governance decisions and interrelationships, right? So then how government and business work together, how they relate, what is the deal literally within the contracts. I always come back to the issue of contracts. Everything in the end is almost a contract. Patents are contracts, procurement are contracts, and procurement is a huge portion of government budgets. We can design these in different ways, and they do matter. Coming back to our first point about also with COVID, just seeing you know, the real differences in how governments have performed depending on kind of that capacity. Um, and, you know, the myths around efficiency have really led to a lot of this outsourcing of the government brain to the private sector. There's no problem with some outsourcing, but it depends what you're outsourcing. I would argue that the whole NSA scandal um, and, you know, the Snowden affair in some ways is an outcome of the U.S. government having outsourced its IT kind of system and management and understanding of information technology and digital 
capabilities. So, you know, this is precisely what uh, this Lord um, in the UK government, Lord Agnew, called the infantilization of government, which is when you're overly consultifying your, your, your structures. And this is what NASA, in the story that I tell about the moon landing, was actually very aware of. There was this wonderful quote by Ernest Brackett, the head of procurement in NASA, who said, we have to be aware of brochuremanship. <laughs> you know, today, this would be the PowerPoints of, you know, the Deloitte and the PWCs. At the time, it must have been, you know, private sector companies coming in and said, yes, pay us this because we're so good at this, that, and the other. And they did collaborate a lot with business, but they did it from a from, from you know, a perspective also of their own expertise and understanding of the world around them. And as soon as you start stop investing within your own dynamic capability within the public sector, you can't be, you, know, you won't know how to write those terms of reference and you won't be a good partner and you will get captured. And that's the irony of it all. Those same people who worry so much about government capture and corruption, it's actually that mentality in some ways that leads to capture. Because by not believing in a, a, what government can do if we structured it properly, then you end up with pretty lame and inefficient and easily captured government institutions. Well, like you said, you know, the market is a social outcome. The market is a tool, not a deity. And the market's structure is part of what a government should provide and enforce. And it's embodied in contracts and penalties and monitoring and all kinds of different, uh, how do I say, practices. But, but I also, as, as I'm listening to you, I can hear the, there, there, there's something that happened while I worked in the Senate, which was during the early Reagan years. A lot of people were um, stripped of their right to a pension. A lot of people I know who worked in senior positions in 1984 to 88, the second Reagan uh, term, left because they didn't think they could make a career despite the fact that they felt a great deal of satisfaction and power from, I don't mean power in an ego sense, but like they could do good working on these, like in my case, Senate committees. But they all felt like the Reagan administration is trying to beat these people down and telling you if you want to have a meaningful career, not only for financial compensation, but everything else, you got to go to the private sector. And so at some level, we I, I guess I'm getting to, when you look at Singapore, they pay and train their civil servants so they don't have to be part of the revolving door when their kids go to college. They pay them they give them pensions, they give them budgets, they give them training so they can be excellent and they can do it for a career. There's a lot of work to do so that the experience of the public sector that we have in the aftermath of the kind of wreckage that began with the Reagan years can validate your vision. We, we, gotta, we gotta bring the things that make people higher quality and more confident and more courageous to the table so that the population can then look at it and say, wow, those guys are good, they did good, they weren't corrupt, and they didn't spin off and, how do I say, collect a salary from my tax money for a decade and then spin out to the people they were actually working for. Yeah. 
No, you're absolutely right. And it's both pay and working conditions, and um, but also, it's also the remit, right? So just, just think of you know, someone like Steve Chu, who was a Nobel Prize winner in physics in the US, a Chinese American. He accepted to go be a civil servant to you know, run the Department of Energy under Obama, not because Obama said, oh, come in and help design at best a carbon tax so we can you know, de-risk business or you know, fix a market failure. What Obama invited him to do is direct an agency which you know, Obama really wanted to help, again, direct the 800 billion stimulus program because he wanted this green recovery after the financial crisis. Um, and you know, I'm sure, well, I, I can't say I'm sure, no one can be sure, but I, I really don't think Steve Chu would have accepted that job had you know, it not have you know, been as ambitious, the task, which was come in, you know, direct this agency, set up an ARPA-E, which is what he then did. Um, he brought in um, Arun Majumdar to uh, direct ARPA-E itself. He then ended up being the head of energy for Google, Arun Majumdar. So the kind of, you know, that, that uh, uh, revolving door was more based on actually capability. You know, you were coming into a Department of Energy, which was seen, seeing itself actually as an investor of first resort, not just the lender of last resort, hence that portfolio perspective we were talking about before, Tesla and Solyndra and so on. And it's an honor to work for such an agency. So, you know, you can also do it through pay. And, you know, Singapore does pay up to, I think, a million dollars to the heads of their departments, but also all civil servants get very good uh, pays and pensions. But it's also about what, what you know, how you're described, what is your role, what is the remit of the place where mm -hmm. you're working? Are you actively mm -hmm. co-creating value? or just fixing yeah. the mistakes that happen along the way with business. So I want to go upstream and long-term with you for a minute. The Institute for New Economic Thinking is about changing the way people think about society and the role of the economy. What would you suggest to us that we need to do about educating? I'm not talking about educating the guys who are in the peer-reviewed journals. I'm talking about educating the broad base of college students and maybe even high school students differently about what the nature of the economy and the nature of the challenge is. How do, how do we change the curriculum in a way that in 15 years has changed the consciousness of what is right and wrong and what are the institutions that, uh, and the structure of them that we should be supporting as citizens? Interesting. I mean, I think we need to break down the answer to that. I mean, one of the things we're trying to do in my institute is actually thinking about that question in terms of global bureaucrats, right? What is the education? What's the training we need to make the word bureaucratic no longer a negative word? There's no reason it should be a negative word when people say, oh, that's so bureaucratic. We need bureaucracies. We just have the wrong ones, right? So what does it look like to create a creative, sexy bureaucracy, right? That requires a different curriculum. And our curriculum actually has these four modules. One is around value, you know, collective value creation. One is on challenge-led policies. One is on, again, the creative bureaucracy organizationally. And the last module is on digital platforms, right? But that actually required us to change the curriculum that's currently being fed through masters in public administrations at top universities to be, you know, just different. You know, like we actually have to rewrite it towards this shaping and co-creation of markets. Um, and at the high school level, I think, you know, coming back to our earlier point, just a curriculum that gives a real sense of agency, you know, coming back to this issue that 
that decisions matter <laughs> and how are decisions made and what are the underlying assumptions uh, you know, around how we think the economy works and you know, kind of playing with that. You can also, uh, I'm sure, make, uh, I don't want to say video games if it's going to be school children, but you, know, you can show people how the assumptions of how we think people behave and how we think the economy works ends up also driving our understanding of how you know the economy works in terms of the models that we build and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy both in terms of virtuous cycle but also a vicious one you could probably you know make some interesting kind of user-friendly uh, again games that could make people realize that actually wow that result depended on this assumption there's nothing deterministic about that result it came about because we thought you know x y and z um, but lastly, I just want to say one thing, because I've got four kids and, and they all went to state schools here in London. My kids and all their friends know about one of the SDGs. I mean, hopefully they know about more than one, but they all know definitely about one, which is the one about clean oceans and the fact that there's so much plastic in the oceans. Why yes. do they know that? Not because an academic told them that, not because a minister told them that, not even because... It's a David Attenborough. Exactly. It was <laughs> I'm a sailor. I watched exactly. Blue Planet, yeah. Blue Planet 2 and everything. But do yeah. you know how powerful Blue Planet has been in terms of waking oh. people up to that SDG, which is we need a plastic-free ocean. It's only going to happen if we have global coordination. It's not just for one country. Water moves, right? But the fact that it required a creative output, you know, wonderful documentary by a master of documentary making. Imagine if we unleashed the power of the creative arts. And I know you're a big, you know, uh, a proponent of this, but, you know, theater, radio, music, uh, you know, cinema in, in its glory to, to help us rethink the kind of lives we want to live and the kind of society that we can build. And it's interesting how some countries, actually, both in Brazil and, and in Dubai, they have these um, museums of the future. In Brazil, in Rio, it's called El Museo de la Mañana, or I said it in Spanish, there must be a more Portuguese version of that, but in Dubai as well. Um, and families go through and they kind of experience what tomorrow might look like if you know, we structure ourselves in particular ways. And there's something about that, you know, bringing that to the curriculum, bringing that to the education process. So it's not just a random documentary as good as, as it was, you know, but we actually create a systemic way that we together can reimagine the lives that we want to leave and the society that we can build. And, you know, there's one artist that I've been working with, Oliver Eliasson. I don't know if you know him. He's a Danish slash German slash Icelandic artist. Yeah. And he I, did I a, don't know him, but I know of him. Yeah. Yeah, so he actually engaged with me quite a bit around my book on value. He even put it in the exhibit. How cool is that when your economics book is in the art exhibit at the Tate? Nice. Um, but we had an interview together, which was in this um, compilation of interviews he put for, for the brochure or the, the guide to the, to the exhibit, where we had a conversation about public value, public space, and so on. And he said something wonderful when we were talking about public space. He said, public space should be a space where you feel safe to disagree right mm -hmm. and you know mm -hmm. just because a square is open and you can walk through it is it really a public square if it's not making everyone first of all feel safe just as much as if you're a you know white middle class woman and you know an, an underprivileged young you know teenager with a hoodie on oh, yes. <laughs> you know we should all feel equally safe and so many young people do not feel safe today because they've been excluded 
from any of the you know places that we so carefully build for certain types of people to go you know have fun um but especially that thing about being safe to disagree i mean given the amount of you know hate on social media and so on what does it mean to actually really design spaces with that idea that people come together and debate and contest whether it's about climate change or about their you know uh, uh, social housing we don't have enough of those and there's something about bringing that to the curriculum that the curriculum becomes you know really a space for debate and contestation about many of these issues that we've been talking about but also teaching people how to have that safe contested well i feel like together today we're we're building a mosaic around your work and the first is the structure the incentives and the affirmation of the public sector the second relates to the nature of education. The third, you, your most recent article on the BBC about the public and safe nature of the media. When what concerns me in part in the United States is, as I said, commodification of social design. The influencers are a private sector so that they're paying attention to the financial incentive and who their advertisers are. And the schools are increasingly privatized. And so the curriculum that the children see has to come, which you might call offline through David Attenborough, rather than what's in the classroom, because there are powerful interests that can thwart that. I remember uh, the famous writer about cities and society, Jane Jacobs from Toronto, Canada. Her last book in 2004 was called Dark Age Ahead. And the third chapter was called Education Versus Credentializing. And it was all about, are you being, how would I say, paying tuition and going to school so you can belong to a, a club with more material safety and advantages in life? Or are you going there to learn? Are you going to school to be given the rubber stamp that you won't interfere with a power culture? Or are you there where you have like you have been expressing, the ability to engage in dissent. Constructive fomenting of critical discourse is critical part thinking. of the health of a society. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I, I don't use the word fascism very much because it's often thrown around. But, you know, how, like, the one thing I think that fascism as a concept has at its core is the belief in a superior race, right? And if you look at how curriculums are designed globally, there's a lot of that. I hate to say it. there's the belief of a superior race in England, which is, you know, again, where I sit and where my kids went to state schools. Most, again, inner city disadvantaged kids never get exposed to any, any philosophy. Okay. Why is that? Is it, you know, do we think they're not capable? <laughs> do we think that that's just for, you know, either private schools or certain types of state schools with certain types of students? I mean, that, that's a really uncomfortable question when you have actually a different curriculum in different types of schools because of the expectations that we've nested within our society of what certain people are capable of. So at best we say, oh, for, for those kids, let's give them a coding class because that's going to be important for their you know, job yeah, prospects. Vocational, what about yeah, philosophy? Yeah. You know, critical thinking. And I don't just mean Western philosophy. I mean global philosophy and debate clubs. You know, how many... How many schools in New York City 
where you know where you live in the state schools in New York City, do they all have debate clubs? Are they all teaching you know uh, kids how to you know think critically? Or for certain kids, are we just trying to push them you know through that school system? And others, <laughs> we give them the glory, the luxury of being able to you know take part of these really essential. Uh, uh, activities which completely foster your confidence, your ability to interact in a proactive way in society. And we've structurally right, designed the system to allow some to succeed because they have that confidence and ability to, or not ability, the training, <laughs> you know, to think in that way and others not. I mean, that it's, it's, it's a very uncomfortable thing to say, but it actually has say it again, a fascist undertone in terms of belief that some are just, you know, have an innate capacity to deal with certain complex ways of reasoning and others don't. Yeah. Or, or those who are on the outside will not be safe if you bring them into the inside because their perceptions about the inequities will continue to agitate and disturb your climate. I, I saw a beautiful paper about uh, as I was doing a, a conference on race and economics. And it was, you know, Milton Friedman had a kind of perspective that if someone is truly productive, the market will lift them up. And this guy wrote a paper said, what if you have four white guys and the black guy is underpaid and truly productive, but the other four guys are scared of working with him and will all quit. Right. You're not going to raise his salary up to his marginal product because the side effects of being on a team where other assets may depart is factored in. And I mean, how would I say it? It just takes a little imagination to see why some of these things don't perform in, the, in what you might call market nirvana in the way that Milton Friedman had espoused. Interesting. But By the, the way, uh, one but... of the people I'm working with now is someone called George the Poet, which I really recommend you look him up. He's, uh, he's how old is he? He's just turned 30. <laughs> um, young black Londoner who was actually very much promising in terms of the rapping industry, but then went to Cambridge and studied all sorts of things, came out and now is a, a, a storyteller. Uh, a public ah. broadcaster <laughs> doing an yeah. amazing podcast. And one of his key theses, and he's actually going to do this through a PhD with us, is that the value that's actually created, for example, from hip hop and from rap, there's two problems. A, we haven't seen it as value creation. So only like one out of you know a million even make any money. We know about them. So many young rappers just end up in the criminal justice system. Um, and two, the actual contracts, how that value that's created from you know, this billion dollar, if more, industry globally is all extracted out. It doesn't actually get reinvested back into the system, which has actually created you know, that value in the first place in terms of social housing and so on. So you know, breaking this stuff down in terms of how do we understand value? Who is a value creator? Coming back to our point, it's not just about the state, but people in society, some have just not been, you know, uh, uh, that word value creation has not been used and it hasn't then fostered that kind of level of self-confidence right, yes. to then also prosper, kind of breaking down all those different bits, which is both in terms of self-identity, but also the structures that are required, the reinvestment that's required in order to foster that in a persistent systemic way. It's just such an interesting, uh, and so he's looking at it from the music side. Yeah. There's a poet in the United States who goes by the name InQ for In Question. And I often cite one of his poems called Evidence, where he says, 
people will always find the evidence to support that which they want to believe. And uh, he's a similar person on YouTube and, and out talking in podcasts and other uh, venues on uh, many different channels and, and raising these questions about, you know, the, the scientific mind is the evidence tells you what to believe. And what he's saying is you selectively go pick the evidence to, conf to conform with what you want to believe. And we don't subject ourselves to that dissent, that discord. There's a wonderful book that was written years ago, 1970, by a man named John W. Gardner. It's called The Recovery of Confidence. He was a Republican who was the head of health education welfare, the cabinet position in the Johnson administration during the time of the mid-60s riots, Detroit, Newark, Watts, and what have you, and the death of Martin Luther King. And he was talking about the recovery of confidence. It's the recovery of faith that society and governance is working for a broad base of people. And one of the things that he, well, there's a chapter in the book about cultivating the importance of dissent. And at the other side of the pendulum, he was essentially saying violence and despondency will often create a counter reaction. James Baldwin was very concerned when Martin Luther King was killed that the militancy of Stokely Carmichael's and others, despite being very sympathetic with their frustration of the lack of progress in the civil rights movement, but he was afraid that that's going to trigger a reaction against the African-American community, even by people who sympathize with their plight because their own fears are triggered. And so there's, these are all very, very, how would I say, nuanced navigations. But I, but I think this uh, electronic learning, the ability of people like George the Poet or NQ to enter the discourse, the Attenboroughs, it, it's hard to, how would I put it? Okay, it's hard to put your head in a cage now. Because if you're curious, if you're feeling annoying, and if things are disconcerting, there are people speaking up. The question is, how do we move it onto center stage and change the consensus? Say the building blocks involve understanding the sources of resistance to evolution and discrediting those resistance, because dissent and critical discourse is essential to the health of our world. Yeah. That's a really good point. And one of the things I often say when I speak to policymakers and civil servants and departments about the kind of the book, um, Mission Economy, is if you feel comfortable by this idea of missions and purpose-driven you know, innovation and investment, then you're not getting it because actually it means really doing things very differently. And, and also in terms of businesses that you know like to say, yes, of course, we will work with government. Well, that actually means doing things differently from what you're doing right now, including how we're distributing, again, the wealth that's created, right? I mean, the reason, you know, coming back to the big pharmaceutical companies, the reasons also that, um, you know, they're often quite profitable, <laughs> more than they necessarily should be, has been how, as we were saying before, the rewards from that collective wealth creation ends up getting distributed, so the prices of the drugs don't even reflect that collective uh, investment. But if you kind of go through all the different things that governments do, it's not just about business, that governments do, uh, problematically, because they've been fed this very uh, siloed and narrow 
view of what government is for. If you have a mission-oriented approach, you have to be willing and humble enough to say, okay, <laughs> what does this actually mean for doing the everyday uh, in a different way? From, again, the design of you know, procurements, grants, loans, but also that relational issue. You know, social movements are so important, and we know that more than ever, right, with Black Lives Matter, Friday for the Future, the Me Too movement. Without trade unions, we wouldn't have the kind of markets we have today, right? They helped us shape markets to be more inclusive. We have weekends and eight-hour workday because of trade unions. What's the equivalent with Black Lives Matter? What's the equivalent with the Me Too movement? What's the equivalent with Fridays for the Future in terms of really shaping market outcomes and the, you know, the kind of society we live in? That itself requires having a different view of what the market is. Again, it's an outcome of how all these different actors, including the forces of social movements, come together. And for that, coming back to the training, it's, it's something that we need to put in our master's in public administration because it's different to just pat you know, Greta Thornburg on the head and say, oh, isn't it cute that an 18, at the time, 16-year-old cares about climate change. It's different just to pat versus to really listen, interact, and allow yourself to get shaped by that interaction and multiply that across all these other movements I just mentioned, especially Black Lives Matter. What does that look like? You know, And that's part of a mission-oriented approach because... It, you know, who's actually designing the missions, who's coming up with the grand ideas of, you know, the, the green transition or, or, you know, a healthier uh, uh, society where we actually value essential workers instead of just label them as essential workers. Uh, that requires a lot of different voices at the table. What the, what's the old saying? Uh, practice what you preach. Uh, but let, let me turn for we're coming down the stretch here. But there is a dimension, I, I believe, without explicitly exploring it, you and I have been talking about things about what we might call within a nation. You mentioned when you were talking about philosophy, not just Western philosophy. Well, I'm, I'm reminded of a speech I saw as a big new Brzezinski give in 2010, where he said, oh boy, we got a big challenge on the horizon. Because number one, the great financial crisis ignited everybody as to how much politics matters. So there's an awareness. Number two, we've gone from a G7, which was largely white males in the Christian Enlightenment tradition, Judeo-Christian Enlightenment tradition, to a G20, where we now have tectonic plates of completely different philosophical systems. So what I guess I'm saying to you is, that learning that you talked about vis-a-vis -vis Me Too, Black Lives Matter, and so also Global Lives Matter. Secondly, the people at the head table don't always see things through the same lens or the same type of training. You're talking now about a changing role of the state, but I think there's another dimension, which is the changing role of the collaboration between states at a time when people have very much soured on the version of globalization that had spawned and concentrated wealth and resources and weakened labor in relation to capital and technology. We've got a lot of repair work to do because particularly with regard to climate, getting it right within the UK or even the United States is not sufficient. I made a climate podcast with Bob Poland the other day and he said, yeah, Rob, you know, if you get it right in China and the United States and the UK and the EU, that's about 52% of the world. 
we got 48 more and we got to bring everybody to the table but global governance way up high isn't too sensitive to what's happening down on the streets but what's going on on the streets can't control international phenomena like pollution that may arise in India or Brazil how do you bring your which you might call moonshot mindset to the global challenge how do we break down the barriers the misunderstandings the fascistic impulses of otherness and and create a coherent framework at the global level big question if i had an answer to that i should win the nobel prize <laughs> <laughs> well you may be on your way let's go <laughs> so, i mean let me just answer again kind of humbly in terms of what i think my book says about some of those questions um besides just you know kind of shooting from from uh, an uninformed head immediately. I mean, the first thing is, you know, the different types of missions that I talk about in the book, some are really kind of very local, you know, they're city level, they're regional, they're national, but the global missions, like the one we mentioned before, you know, getting the plastic out of the ocean, it's, it's actually easier than some of these bigger issues around inequality, but still, it requires a massive global effort. And that requires having certain types of institutions, right? where these global discussions are happening and we have them for some things you know look at cern right we have a big global public lab which got us by the way html with scientists from all over the world you know collaborating and innovating together we have nothing like that for questions around say immigration which you know is a huge issue in so many different countries and causes you know a lot of uh, a terrible uh, xenophobic <laughs> crimes within countries. We should be bringing, you know, anthropologists, sociologists, and this isn't just an, an academic point, campaigners uh, and, and people with experience around issues around immigration together in play. I mean, I'm not thinking necessarily a physical lab, even though it's always nice to be able to also be under one roof, like CERN is under one roof in Geneva. But, you know, it's, it's so interesting coming back to that wartime thing, that when we think things matter, like, you know, physics, <laughs> you know, we actually bother getting, you know, global scientists together and these other kind of social problems. Yes, they are trickier than purely technological ones, but we should give them the equal weight to say, let's bring the, you know, minds, not just academic, you know, again, campaigners and social movements and scientists and so on together to confront globally the kind of, you know, a, a, a social innovation, organizational innovation, technological innovation, but also, you know, your point about collaboration, that needs an innovation in and of itself. That is, in fact, a social innovation. How do we collaborate in different ways? And it's amazing how in some problems we've done that and others completely ignored it. And that reminds me that even with technology, think of, you know, the whole concept of big data and AI. With some problems, we've really thrown the power of big data at the problem. Think of things like personalized medicine has really benefited from big data. Other problems, like how we construct social housing, in, in the UK we call them estates, in the US we call them projects. What I was so interested here, we had a policy that was like as lit as, as, as opposite from big data that you can think about. So tiny data. <laughs> in other words, even though the government had data on who was living on you know, housing estates, we had a policy called the bedroom tax. How many people you know, uh, live in your uh, 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 house? 
um, and how many, sorry, sorry, how many kids do you have and how many bedrooms do you have? You know, so if you had too many or too few people in too many bedrooms, you were actually kicked out and had to move to a different place. So with no analysis of all the data that you might have on the family, how many years they've been there, the problems that the kid might have had if there was someone with autism or not anyway. So because we don't actually really care <laughs> about people and certain types of people, we're actually not throwing the power of, of you know, our ability to, and, and I don't want to just overly emphasize the power of data and our analysis of data, but it's just so interesting how in some problems we've thrown the full weight of the best that the 21st century can offer at it, and others we still are working as though it was 50 years ago. And this comes, you know, you know back to the also issue of government. Obama had this great quote. He said, the last time that we reorganized government was at in the age of black and white TV. <laughs> and yet we seem to have reorganized everything else because we care about it. And that's that self-fulfilling prophecy. But global collaboration, coming back to the question that you opened up with, which is what is the, the great stuff that we're seeing in the world today, the inspiring stuff. You know, definitely vaccine production is a global effort. <laughs> There's been, you know, lots of different research coming around the world, but if we don't govern that, so that citizens all around the world benefit, we have failed. It's not enough to collaborate globally. We need to then structure that collaboration and the governance of something as concrete as a vaccine to meet citizens' needs. And as I was saying in the beginning, we've done one bit and failed miserably on the other. So we're getting this you know, vaccine apartheid and that requires solidarity. And it's really interesting if you come back and look what's happened in Europe in recent years, you know, in terms of the divisions between European countries and then Brexit, Europe was actually set up as a solidarity program, right? It wasn't just about economic growth. It was solidarity after the war to avoid all those wars <laughs> that, you know, afflicted Europe. And the European project was just as much or more so a project around solidarity than growth. When it purely became this kind of, you know, a common market and kind of growth agenda and lost the solidarity, the European project and I don't want to say it's lost because I really believe in the European project, but it got much, yeah. much weaker. It began to sputter. Yeah, so that's for sure. Solidarity matters in terms of how we structure our economies. And there's no better place to see that when it goes wrong than what's been happening in recent years with Europe, which I really hope that we learn also um, the, the disaster that Brexit <laughs> has been and will be to make sure that other countries don't go down that way. But that shouldn't let the EU off the hook. They've failed themselves <laughs> to foster that solidarity. If we look again at what happened after the financial crisis, where, as we mentioned, the conditions that were imposed on certain European countries to get any sort of recovery fund was based on cutting all sorts of different public you know, services. And that caused misery and caused a real backlash. But anyway, your, your question about solidarity and global co collaboration, I think, is really important, both in terms of how we do stuff together whether it's you know uh, getting plastic out of the ocean or building a vaccine, how we govern that process to really meet citizens' needs, but also that solidarity angle is, is how we live together, <laughs> you know. Um, yes. Yes. Well, I want to say to you that uh, as I've been following your speaking and your writing and the visions that you've been sharing this last, uh, particularly since the beginning of the pandemic. I keep hearing a song that comes to mind. And it's a song took place a little bit north of where you live, up in Dublin, by a band called U2. 
And it's, the, the name of the song is 40, F, like 4-0. It's made by U2. And, this, and this, I'll just read you a little bit of the lyrics so you can understand how, how you've inspired me and, and, and others that I've talked to. Said, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. He lift me up out of the pits and out of the miry clay. I will sing, I will sing a new song. I will sing, I will sing a new song. And then he goes on to the chorus of how long to sing this song, how long. And then as I sensed, just as you accelerated in these few months during the pandemic, the second verse is Bono singing about his gratitude as he's being fortified. And he said, he set my feet upon a rock and made my footsteps firm. Many will see and many will see and hear. I will sing, I will sing a new song. And I've seen your conviction and the growth of your vitality and your new song. I just couldn't help but share that with you today. Rob, that's so not nice. I want to hug you. <laughs> and even if we were in the same yeah, room, we couldn't hug. <laughs> That's right. Oh, thank you. That is so kind of you. It's always so wonderful to but, speak to you. You inspire many. Well, of and you too. And uh, well, I'm inspired to work with you. Oh, thanks, Rob. I, uh, I'll tell you a little joke. When I, after the British pound evaluation in 1992, I had a discussion with George Soros, and he said, uh, you're, you're from a Christian tradition. I said, yeah, my mother was a Scottish Presbyterian. And he said, good. Well, what we just did, St. Peter or the equivalent's not going to let you through the gate. you got to use this freedom to do something good with your life. <laughs> and uh, maybe, maybe I became a part of that. But, uh, yeah. but I think the kind of work that you're doing now is the kind of work that's more deeply satisfying than nice cars and trophies and making money unto right. itself. <laughs> and so you're, le you're leading by example. You're practicing what you preach. Thank you, and, Rob. And I really wish you the best in, and hope to be supportive of you convincing people because there is a cynicism that those of us who think that government can play a different role are just romantically foolish. Yeah. Just like the market fundamentalists were romantically foolish. And it's incumbent upon us to persevere with the courage to bring this new design, to sing this new song. And uh, thanks. I, I'm, I'm very grateful that you came and talked about it with me today. Thank you so much. And I'm very grateful that Thank you. you've taken extra time. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing